Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. There are people who know what happened to Mike. If those people would come forward and give some sort of plausible explanation for what happened, that could set this investigation on a whole different track. Absent that, you're just left to wonder what did happen. That was Tallahassee Democrat News Director Jennifer Portman telling a true crime show eight years ago that the investigation into the disappearance of Mike Williams would remain in a stasis until someone with knowledge about it came forward. Someone did, under dramatic circumstances. Jerry Michael Williams was murdered by the two closest people in his life, his best friend and wife. The latter was sentenced to life in prison 18 years after her husband's violent murder. That story is coming up on Sun Crime State. I'm Tony Holt, crime reporter for the Daytona Beach News Journal. Welcome to Sun Crime State, a weekly podcast that takes an in-depth look at Florida's biggest crime stories of the past and present. In this episode, I'll take you back to the chilly morning of December 16th, 2000, in a remote spot in the Florida Panhandle. Mike Williams disappeared during an early morning hunting trip at Lake Seminole and was never seen again. After a painstaking search of the lake, Mike's body was never found. Authorities surmised he was attacked and eaten by alligators, but that theory was rejected by his mother, who pushed hard to have her son's disappearance properly investigated. The case finally broke in the fall of 2017, when Mike's remains were found buried at another lake. Mike's killers, his wife and best friend, are now behind bars. My special guest for this episode will be FDLE Special Agent Supervisor Will Meichler, as well as Tallahassee Democrat News Director Jennifer Portman. Just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. I wrote 2,600 letters to the governor of Florida asking for help in finding my son. I begged Fish and Game to do a criminal investigation. They told me Mike drowned and got eaten by alligators and there was no need for an investigation. They laughed at me and called me crazy. That was Cheryl Williams, affectionately known by those who know her as Miss Cheryl. She was speaking at her estranged daughter-in-law's sentencing hearing in a Leon County courtroom on February 6th. In her prepared statement, 
Cheryl Williams described the heartbreak she suffered when she learned about her youngest son's disappearance and the prolonged agony she dealt with during the better part of two decades, not knowing what happened to her son. Everyone was kept in the dark about what really happened to Mike Williams. The two people who did know kept it a secret until one got arrested following a confrontation that involved a gun. More on that later. Jerry Michael Williams was a 31-year-old, well-to-do real estate appraiser in Tallahassee, a married father of one. During the afternoon, December 16, 2000, Mike didn't return home from a hunting trip at Lake Seminole outside Sneeds, located about 50 miles west of Tallahassee. A search team went looking for Mike after his boat was found and after some of the items he was thought to have been wearing that day surfaced. It was assumed that Mike had drowned. Since the man-made reservoir opened in the 1950s, 80 people had drowned in Lake Seminole as of late 2000. Only one time did a declared drowning take place in which the body wasn't found, and it was the body of Mike Williams. That puzzled the Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission, but the idea of foul play was never seriously considered. The best explanation authorities could come up with at the time was that Mike was eaten by alligators. No journalist has covered this case for as long or with as much vigor as Tallahassee Democrat News Director Jennifer Portman. Here she is summing up why it took so long for this case to shift from an accidental death declaration to a criminal investigation. But without a body, without any physical evidence, there was never any way to prove that he had been murdered and to disprove this idea that he had drowned in the lake. Mike Williams was born October 16, 1969. He was the second of two sons born to Jerry and Cheryl Williams. Jerry was a Greyhound bus driver and Cheryl was a daycare provider. Mike and his brother Nick were raised in a double-wide trailer in an unincorporated area called Bradfordville, located a short distance north of Tallahassee. The family didn't have much, but Cheryl was determined to send her boys to a private school. They attended North Florida Christian High School. Mike was a driven student. While in high school, he got good grades, played football, and was elected class president. In the ninth grade, he met Denise Merrill. The two became enamored with each other, and they would begin a long courtship. There would be bumps in the road, but whenever they'd split... It was inevitable that they'd get back together. While at North Florida Christian, Mike also met Brian Winchester, and those two became fast friends. Brian dated another classmate of theirs named Kathy. So Mike, Denise, Brian, and Kathy were a unit. After they graduated from high school, the foursome attended Florida State University together. After they graduated, they went out and did things together, eat, drink, watch movies, and take trips. Mike majored in political science and urban planning at FSU, and by the time he graduated, he had a job waiting for him. The owner of the company that hired him called Mike the hardest working man he had ever met. Mike married Denise in 1994, roughly the same time Brian and Kathy got married. Mike and Denise had a daughter, Ansley, in 1999. 
Their friends had a son around the same time. Mike worked long hours, but he always made time for his daughter. He would work a full day, come home, feed his daughter, and then go back to work. Sometimes he'd bring Ainsley with him to the office. But not everything was going well for Mike at home. He noticed his wife was becoming distant. The two hadn't been intimate in a long time, and Denise's erratic behavior was troubling Mike. Things would not improve. During the mid-part of 2000, Mike and Denise bought a robust life insurance policy. The one who helped them obtain the policy was none other than Brian Winchester, who was an insurance broker. Brian was always in Mike's life. They hunted together. They fished together. They shared with each other all of what was going on at home. Things weren't going all that great between Brian and Kathy either, so Brian seemed empathetic to what Mike was going through. But there was something about Brian that Mike did not know. He also didn't know everything that was going on with his wife, Denise, or Brian's wife, Kathy, for that matter. Here again is Jennifer Portman. Before Mike's disappearance, uh, uh, Brian puts it at three years before, he and Denise started having an affair behind Mike's back. Kathy kind of became wise to it before Mike went missing. And there was a sort of a three-way relationship between her and Denise and Brian. There were lurid photographs of the three of them in Panama City Beach. Mike didn't participate in any of this. It was during Denise Williams' trial last year that Brian Winchester spoke publicly about the affair between him and his best friend's wife. It started one night in 1997, after the sexual tension had started being felt by both Brian and Denise. The two couples went out together that night. Mike was driving, and he dropped off Brian and Denise. Kathy stayed in the car with Mike, who drove around to look for a parking spot. That's when Brian and Denise kissed for the first time. Here is Brian testifying about what happened later that night and the following day. I don't know, we just, we connected like nobody else. I mean, we just really connected and we had a lot of sexual talk and had phone sex and that sort of thing. And um, we agreed and then uh, met up the next day. Uh, I think we just met during her lunch break at work. Um, And that's kind of what just started the whole ball rolling with her and I. Mike became suspicious of his wife, but not of Brian. Nobody came forward to tell Mike about all that was going on behind his back. Mike began to suspect shortly before he disappeared that something was up with Denise. First he thought maybe she was doing drugs, and then he did become convinced that she was having an affair with someone. You know, no one ever told him, confirmed that, or told him that it was Brian. The Tallahassee Democrat published a story years ago stating that Mike and Denise told his mother and his brother, Nick, they were planning to have another child together soon. But according to Brian Winchester, Denise had fallen completely out of love with her husband. Brian and Denise were figuring out a way to be together. The married couple's sixth anniversary was scheduled for December 16, 2000. Mike and Denise were expected to go to Apalachicola 
and spend the night at a bed and breakfast to celebrate their anniversary. Brian Winchester said Denise had told him that she was dreading that trip. Brian, who had gone on a hunting expedition with Mike to Arkansas a month before the couple's anniversary, told trial jurors that during the long drive to Arkansas, Mike opened up to him and told him that a lot was riding on that anniversary celebration he had planned with his wife. If things didn't get better between them, he was likely to leave her. Divorce was not an option for Denise. Also, there was $1.7 million coming to her if her husband wound up dead. That was the total payout of Mike's life insurance policies. Here again is Brian Winchester testifying about that. Better to be a rich widow than a, uh, a poor divorcee. And her, her biggest concern with the divorce was she didn't want to share custody of Ansley with, with Mike. Um, she was not going to have Ansley going back and forth to two different uh, houses. Um, she wasn't going to give that up. Brian and Denise decided to murder Mike, but they had to be clever about it. It had to look like an accident. That required planning. That $1.7 million that Brian helped set up was part of that plan. That goes to show you how early everything was set into motion. Pushing Mike into a life insurance agreement worked in Denise's favor because Mike was a new father and he had people in his life, from his boss to his co-workers to his family, urging him to get all the insurance he could. It would be best for his daughter in the event something happened to him. Unaware of what he was being set up for, Mike signed all the paperwork. Then came the murder itself. Killing Mike and making it look like an accident was going to require a complex plan, perfect execution, and a little bit of luck, too. The original date was on or around December 9th. Brian and Mike were going to meet someplace in Tallahassee. They would then take separate cars to Lake Seminole. Brian and Mike were going to take the boat out, and Brian was going to push Mike into the water and cause him to drown. There were two keys to all of it. First of all, Mike needed to be wearing fishing waders. They are made of a heavy rubber, and they're regularly worn by hunters and fishermen. They're designed to keep a person's legs and feet dry while he or she stands in thigh-deep water. However, if you're in deep water wearing waders, you'll sink like a stone. The other key component to the plan was that no one could know that Brian was going on the trip with Mike, other than Denise. Brian even scheduled something mid-morning with his father-in-law so that he could point to an alibi in case people started asking questions. He also made sure to keep his cell phone off at all times. He didn't want any sort of trail. Shortly before the scheduled trip on December 9th, Mike called it off. He told Brian that his wife didn't want him to go. Brian got angry. Duck hunting season wasn't going to last much longer, and there was no plan B, so it was now or never. Brian desperately wanted to be with Denise, and he was desperate to convince her to go through with it. He called her on the phone. Here is Brian recalling that conversation 
while on the stand. I don't think it was pressuring her as much as stating the facts of this is this is the reality of the situation. If you want this to happen, this is the best time for it to happen. Um, Were all of those issues things? That you- I was not happy. I'm sorry to interrupt, but I, I was not happy about the fact that we had made these plans and I had committed that this was what was going to happen. And then at the last second, she backed out. Brian swayed her. The two decided that December 16th would be the date. Mike was expected to be back home by noon so that he could take his wife to Apalachicola for their anniversary. Denise's job was to simply act normal. And after the murder took place, she wasn't supposed to say or do anything to elicit any suspicion. She had to act like a grieving wife. Brian basically had to do all the work. He got his alibi in order. He even went so far as to take his wife out for drinks the night before and get her so drunk that she would pass out. He also made sure she took some sleeping medication so she'd be in a deep sleep early in the morning. After he killed Mike, Brian would return home and sneak back into bed with Kathy. Then he would get up and get ready to meet his father-in-law. Kathy would awaken to see her husband at home, getting ready to go meet her dad. She wouldn't suspect a thing. It was also up to Brian to convince Mike to wear his waders. Here he is describing how he did that. At this point in Brian's testimony, he struggles to control his emotions. I had told him that uh, we were going to go to a secret special spot to go hunting. And um, and that he needed to bring his waders. I had to make sure that he brought his waders because the belief was there was kind of like a, there still is probably like a duck hunter's myth that if you fall overboard with your waders, you're going to sink really quick and drown. So I had to make sure that he brought his waders. Brian chose Lake Seminole because it was deep and desolate. There were other lakes closer to home where Mike had gone hunting but those bodies of water were three to five feet deep. Lake Seminole was the best option for Brian to stage an accidental drowning. Here is Brian Winchester telling jurors what he did once he and Mike got the boat into the water. We, we headed out, and there was a deep area, maybe a couple hundred yards from the landing that we put in at we got to that area that I knew was a, a deep area and I I don't remember exactly how I got him to stand up but I don't know if I pretended something was wrong with the motor or the weight in the boat was off or something but I, I basically stopped the boat and got him to, to stand up and when he did I pushed him into the water The waders would have caused a less experienced outdoorsman to drown, but Mike was too skilled for that. So he was in the water, and he was, like, struggling. And the motor of the boat was still running, and I pulled off just a little bit to get kind of away from him so that he couldn't reach back into the boat and I didn't know it at the time I I didn't know if he was trying to swim or I didn't know what was going on but but 
what I came to find out or eventually realized was he was taking the waders and the jacket off. That area of the lake had a lot of um, snags, a lot of dead trees that come up out of the water, and there's a lot of stumps that come up out of the water. <laughs> and he swam over to one of those stumps and held on to it. Jennifer Portman told me that Mike had actually practiced getting out of his waders in case something like that ever happened. He would practice in his swimming pool. So to Brian's horror, he was going to have to improvise. He was going to have to murder Mike while his friend clung to life on that stump. And he was panicking, and I was panicking. And none of this was, like, going well. I thought it was going to go. And I didn't, I didn't know what to do. But um, he, was, he started to yell. And I didn't know. I didn't know. I didn't know how to get out of that situation. And so... I had my gun in the boat. <laughs> and uh, so I loaded my gun and I just, I made one or two circles around and I ended up circling closer towards him and he was in the water. And as I passed by, I shot him. Brian shot his best friend point blank in the face. Moments later, Brian reached into the water and grabbed a hold of Mike's body. He steered the boat with one hand near the nearest dirt landing. As the boat moved toward the ramp, Brian dragged Mike through the water. Brian backed his Chevrolet Suburban down the ramp close enough to the boat that he wouldn't have to carry his friend's body. All he had to do was lift him and put him in the back of his truck. He had a lot of trouble doing that. Mike weighed about 175 pounds. That was 175 pounds of dead weight to load into a truck while standing in mud. Brian was running out of time. By then, he knew he was going to miss his get-together with his father-in-law. He knew he couldn't call him to cancel because the authorities, if they suspected him, would check his phone records and see he had made a call in proximity to the lake. He kept his phone turned off and drove straight home. When he got home, his wife was still asleep. Brian called his father-in-law and apologized for oversleeping. His wife woke up, but she was too lethargic to notice anything strange. Brian changed clothes and told his wife he was going out for a bit. Mike's body was still in his truck. He had to go bury him. Brian went back outside and made a grim discovery. I went back out to the driveway to leave. When I went out to the driveway, my driveway was angled and I was walking behind my truck and I saw out of the back tailgate blood was coming out of the back of my tailgate and dripping onto the driveway and that freaked me out so I rinsed that off and 
uh, was trying to figure out. I'd been thinking on the way from Lake Seminole back to Tallahassee, what, what was I going to do with him? And I don't know when I decided, but you know, ultimately I decided it had to be close and it had to be quick. Um, and it had to be obviously a location that, you know, he wouldn't be found. Brian had to take the body to an out-of-the-way place, but he couldn't drive too far. It was only a matter of time before Denise was expected to start making calls, asking about Mike. Brian and Denise decided not to talk to each other over the phone, because again, they didn't want to arouse suspicion. Once it was discovered that Mike had not returned home from his hunting trip, someone was going to drive out to the lake. Eventually, somebody was going to find Mike's abandoned vehicle. Brian drove Mike's body to a lake he knew well. Carr Lake was located in northern Leon County, roughly five miles from where Mike grew up. Brian bought some tools and drove all the way to the end of Gardner Road, which stopped near the edge of the lake, and that's where he buried Mike's body. While he was doing that, Denise made a phone call to her father. It was around 1 p.m. when Warren Merrill got that call from his seemingly distraught daughter. Two hours later, Merrill and a friend of Mike's showed up at Lake Seminole. They found Mike's truck and boat trailer, but there was no boat and no sign of Mike. The Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission, known as FWC, is tasked with searching for missing hunters. They were called and they responded about an hour later. It was 4 p.m. when FWC arrived. By then, sundown was looming. Calls were made to Mike's family that he was missing. People were growing more and more worried. A search party was assembled but they were restricted by darkness, cold weather, and an incoming storm. Among those in the search party was Brian Winchester. He and his father were on a boat, searching the area, looking for Mike. While he was on the stand describing the search, you can hear in Winchester's voice how ashamed he was admitting that he knew all along where Brian was while no one else did. He had to pretend to be a worried friend while everyone else around was genuinely worried, even frantic, including Brian's own father. We, my dad and I went out on the lake and searched for Mike. He was searching and I was just lying. There was a storm that came through that night. Um, I think we got off the lake before uh, that happened, but... um, you know, my dad wanted to look at it. I think we were the last ones on the lake. And my dad didn't want to give up. My dad loved Mike. As Brian Winchester continued sobbing, the prosecutor asked the judge for a recess, which was granted. The witness folded his arms and lay his head down and continued to cry. People filed out of the courtroom. Everyone was gone except for a court clerk and a couple of deputies, along with a witness. After a minute or two, the witness composed himself enough and was escorted out by the deputies. It was the most chilling and gut-wrenching testimony given during the trial, but the state had more evidence to present. 
coming up. I'll discuss the exhaustive search for Mike Williams, the marriage of Brian Winchester and Denise Williams, which eventually unraveled in disturbing fashion. You'll hear more from Jennifer Portman, whose reporting helped jumpstart the investigation. And you'll also hear from FDLE agent supervisor Will Meichler, who was one of the many investigators assigned to the case. Just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Well, the first thing that I'll say about Ms. Cheryl is if it wasn't for her pushing so hard, there may not have been a criminal investigation into the disappearance of her son. She's the one that, that persevered through quite a bit um, to get this case in front of investigators. seemed like, I think, to her and to others that the um, case wasn't going anywhere, and she continued to push and continued to push and to bring awareness to uh, the fact that her son was missing. I would say her her pushing this case along was, was definitely beneficial in keeping this information and, and this active case kind of in the public eye. That was Will Meichler of the Florida Department of Law Enforcement talking about Mike Williams' mother, Cheryl Williams, whose perseverance forced investigators to restart the case more than once during an arduous 17-year span. But at first, authorities assumed Mike was involved in a boating accident. For years, they refused to be convinced otherwise. Cheryl tried to convince them, but they ignored her. In some cases, they laughed at her. On the morning of December 17, 2000, the day after Mike's disappearance, the search party returned to the lake they had abandoned the night before due to the serious storm. It was bitterly cold that morning, but the weather improved enough for FWC and concerned residents to search the lake. Brian Winchester and his father found Mike's boat, not far from the landing where Brian had left it. Brian went back out on the water and was joined by Dave Arnett of FWC. Here is Arnett telling Investigation Discovery in 2011 what he found in the boat. I found two life jackets laying under a bag of decoys in the front of the boat and a shotgun still in a zippered case uh, along the edge of the driver's seat. I took the top off of the gas tank and when I did, I immediately saw that it was absolutely full of gas, that it had not ran very long. So my feeling was that he had fell out of the boat near the landing. In that area near the landing where the boat was discovered, the water isn't that deep, five feet at the most. There's also a lot of vegetation, so it baffled searchers that Mike's body wasn't found. There were other peculiarities that the searchers noticed. The boat was on the western shore, 
but the winds from the day of December 16th should have pushed the unmanned boat all the way to the east. Also, the engine was off, but full of gas. If Mike was running the boat and fell out, it would have kept going in circles until it ran out of gas. Those go-devil motors basically withstand anything. They don't stall for no apparent reason. More than 730 man-hours across 57 days were spent looking for Mike Williams in that lake. Jackson County Sheriff's deputies assisted FWC. The searchers did not navigate the entire lake, which is pretty large. Most of that lake is on the other side of the Georgia state line. They remained in the vicinity they felt certain Mike fell into. They went over a 10-acre area. They would go a few feet and take long PVC pipes and poke the bottom of the lake hoping to find Mike's body or some trace of him. But they came up empty. That's when an interesting conclusion was reached. Officials assumed Mike sunk to the bottom of the lake with his waders on and was eaten by alligators. That theory stuck for a few years. Cheryl Williams never believed that. She went so far as to call an expert at Florida State, asking whether it was possible that an alligator could have eaten a grown man in a lake in the middle of December. She received a letter in which the expert stated, quote, Although attributing the disappearance of your son to an alligator attack may be a convenient explanation for the authorities, the scientific facts surrounding this case indicate that this explanation is virtually impossible. Six months after Mike's disappearance, a discovery was made in the lake. A pair of waders was seen floating in the water. A diver searched the bottom of the lake in the area of where the waders were found, and he recovered a flashlight and a jacket. They were believed to have belonged to Mike. Brian told authorities that he wasn't sure the waders were Mike's, but he told them that it resembled a pair that Mike wore. The waders should have been covered in muck, but they weren't. They should have been slimy, but they weren't. If Mike really had been eaten by gators, then there should have been teeth marks. There weren't. The jacket and flashlight also weren't slimy or damaged. Mike's hunting license was found inside one of the pockets of the jacket. Those discoveries should have aroused more suspicion, but they didn't. In fact, Denise used those discoveries as evidence when she filed to have Mike's disappearance declared an accidental death. In the state of Florida, a person must be missing for seven years before he or she can be declared dead. Exceptions are made when there is evidence to show that a death took place. Denise filed that petition mere days after the waiters and jacket were found. A probate court judge ruled in Denise's favor, so that meant Denise had $1.7 million coming her way. There was one person who could have put some pressure on investigators to look into the matter more. And that person was Denise Williams, but she never did so. In fact, she seemed to be in a hurry to move on from her husband. In February 2001, Denise decided to hold a memorial service for Mike. Cheryl was not supportive of the decision, but she left that up to Denise. To friends and family, Denise seemed forlorn. 
She didn't communicate much. It seemed her husband's death had devastated her. Meanwhile, Denise and Brian kept hiding their relationship from others. They didn't want to draw any unwanted attention to themselves. There was one person who was wise to the relationship, Brian's wife. After Mike went missing, she became very suspicious. And, you know, Brian acted weird. And their relationship between Kathy and Brian was already kind of on the rocks. And um, she, it just disintegrated after that. And so she ended up divorcing him. There was a brief hint at some sort of reconciliation, but it never took. And Kathy went on and, and remarried and, you know, had, you know, family with another person. And she stayed in Tallahassee and actually continued to be friends with Denise and she had to have contact with Brian because her and Brian had a son together. So there was still a relationship there but it was certainly not a love relationship anymore and she knew that he just wanted to be with Denise. You heard Jennifer Portman mention that Kathy was suspicious after Mike's disappearance. As her suspicions grew, so did her guilt. Maybe if she had told Mike about the affair, he likely would have split from Denise and then disengaged from Brian. Maybe if all that happened, Mike would still be alive. That was something Kathy wrestled with, and may still wrestle with. Jennifer Portman learned a lot about Mike Williams while researching this case. She learned there was little to dislike about the man that Brian and Denise were so hell-bent to make disappear. The way you talk about Mike, um, nobody's perfect, but this guy seemed like a great dad, a great husband. He didn't seem to have any skeletons in his closet, right? No, I mean, he really didn't. I mean, the worst you could say about Mike was he worked too much, you know, um, and to a fault. He, you know, he was obsessed and, you know, he came from very humble and poor upbringing and he was interested in making money. He wanted to transcend, you know, growing up in a trailer and, you know, so that was really important for him and he, you know, liked to have nice things and so, no, I mean, there was no indication from anyone and certainly at trials, you know, things can come out, but, you know, from all reports and everything we've been able to learn, you know, the worst you could say was that he worked too hard and that, you know, at the time he liked, you know, polo shirts and members only jackets. In December 2001, one year after Mike's disappearance, a friend drove Denise to Lake Seminole. Denise's friend left her alone for 30 minutes. Denise went to the area where Mike's boat had been discovered. She brought a letter with her that she had written, and she brought a flower. She returned to her friend with tears in her eyes. She said that a Christian counselor she had been seeing had encouraged her to visit the site. He thought, and Denise thought, it would be cathartic for her. Denise was clearly moving on with her life. In December 2005, Denise married Brian, and the couple lived in the same house where Denise and Mike and Ansley had lived. Now five years old, Ansley was being raised in that house by her mother and new stepdad. Denise and Brian had gone public with their relationship the previous year, and predictably, people were suspicious. Coincidentally or not, the FDLE opened an investigation in 2004. The case wasn't getting any traction, but that did not stop Cheryl Williams from doing all she could to raise public awareness. She posted bulletins, she paid for billboards, 
She paid for advertising in the Tallahassee Democrat. Cheryl Williams actually was credited with bringing the case to the attention of FDLE. The agency couldn't legally take over the case, but it could offer assistance to Jackson County. The agents who were familiar with the case agreed with Cheryl. Something was bizarre. There was no way that a body would just disappear in a lake of that depth and within an area that small. Cheryl's pursuit of the truth had one significant consequence. Denise gave her mother-in-law an ultimatum. Stop urging investigators to look into Mike's death or lose her granddaughter forever. Cheryl never gave up on her son, and Denise followed through with her threat. The FDLE wound up closing the case eventually. Cheryl was bitterly disappointed, but undeterred. She continued her crusade. She kept calling cold case investigators. She stood along roadways, holding signs with a photo of Mike. Property owners fussed at her. People called her an eccentric, or worse. She refused to stop. She also continued buying ads in the Tallahassee Democrat, and one of those ads drew the attention of a reporter there, Jennifer Portman. Well, when I first saw it, it was like deep in the A section, and I came across this paid ad, and it said, please help me find my son, he's missing, and it went on to detail this just fantastic, unbelievable tale of a guy who supposedly went duck hunting and fell out of his boat and was eaten by alligators. And you know, the ad was by his mom, Cheryl Williams, and she was laying out how this was absolutely not possible and how she had gotten a criminal investigation going um, and how she was desperate for anyone who might have seen anything at the lake that morning to please call. And I immediately was like, transfixed. I mean, it was like, this is, what is that? I mean, this is the most amazing, crazy thing I've heard. This is, And so I started looking in the newspaper archives and saw we really hadn't read anything about it. And I asked around and it turned out that no one had really um, written about the case or hadn't really gotten any attention at all. So I dug in and for about six months, you know, started reporting everything, talking to everyone I possibly could who remembered what was going on. And, you know, in December of uh, 20, 20, 2006, I published this first uh, package of stories about Mike Williams. The headline in Portman's first story was straightforward. It read, six years ago, this hunter disappeared. Below the headline was a photo of Mike Williams. Below that was a photo of the sky over Lake Seminole around sunrise, near the area where Mike's boat was found. The story included quotes from Cheryl Williams, Mike's friends, people who searched the lake for Mike, as well as local and state investigators. It was almost unanimous. Nobody thought Mike's death was an accident. Brian and Denise were contacted by Portman. They declined to be interviewed. But Brian did send Portman an email. It read, quote, We love Mike and miss him terribly and would ask that our privacy be respected through what continues to be a very difficult time. The article mentions that people were batting around the idea that Mike moved away. Maybe he cracked under all the pressure from work and at home and decided to start over with a new name in a new place. Nobody close to Mike ever believed that. They knew he would never leave his daughter. 
They also knew he loved his job and loved his friends and family. Portman continued writing stories about Mike's disappearance in The Democrat at least once a year. Cheryl did her part too. She continued marching to the beat of her own drum and banging the drum for a more in-depth criminal investigation as loudly as she could. In 2012, she decided to write Governor Rick Scott a letter each day urging him to assign the case to another investigating agency or assign it to a special prosecutor. Those letters went unanswered. She wrote more than 230 of them. She would later find out that the governor's office started forwarding the letters to FDLE, which kept them in the case file. That cut her deeply. In September 2012, Cheryl told Portman, quote, They could not have hurt me more if they had punched me in the face. Portman included that quote in a column she wrote for the paper. Relations between FDLE and Cheryl Williams seemed beyond repair. It all seemed over. Will Meichler told me that investigators had long suspected Brian Winchester had something to do with Mike's death. They just had no way of proving it. There wasn't necessarily a hard piece of evidence, physical evidence, that led investigators to believe that, that he was involved. I think just there was an investigator's hunch, you know, a gut feeling, Um, related to, this just doesn't sound right. In 2012, Brian and Denise separated. Things really started going bad in about 2012. That's when you see, from letters and whatnot, you know, that they're separated, they're not living together. Um, He's trying to make amends by going to, I mean, he says he's a sex addict and going to some church uh, reforming programs. Um, But, you know, over the four-year period of time when they remain uh, separated and estranged, it doesn't get better, and she finally files for divorce in, in the spring of 2016. Then came a development no one expected. The journalist who first uncovered it was Jennifer Portman. Fast forward to August of 2016, and Brian, I'm looking at the booking report. Now I'm the news director at the Tallahassee Democrat. I'm not a reporter anymore. I'm still looking at the daily booking report of who's been arrested in Leon County, and I see Brian Winchester's mugshot in there, and he's been arrested for kidnapping. And it turns out that he had been arrested and charged with armed kidnapping of none other than Denise Williams, his now estranged wife, who has filed for divorce against him. And that was clear at that moment that I understood how significant that was and other people who had been sort of following the case as you know along with me realized how significant it was and it turned out to really be the precipitating event that set the stage for ultimately uh, Brian Winchester confessing to murdering Mike Williams and implicating Denise Williams in the crime. The day Brian kidnapped Denise was the same day he was ordered by the court to provide an appraisal of the couple's home. That morning, Denise left her house and drove to work. She was on her phone with her sister. She saw someone climb over the back seat of her vehicle. It was Brian. He took her phone away from her and held her at gunpoint. He told her where to drive to. Brian kidnapped Denise 
because she froze him out completely. Here is Jennifer Portman telling me that Brian was paranoid that Denise would go to police with information about Mike's death. She stopped returning his calls and he was nervous that she would go to the police and tell her side of what happened and implicate him as being entirely responsible for what happened to Mike. And so because he was panicked and couldn't get a hold of her, he, you know, went and abducted her. Now, you know, he says he never intended to hurt her. And, you know, I don't know that that's true or not, but it was based on this panic. He told his friend that, that, you know, he was completely paranoid that the cops were surveilling him and that Denise would turn on him and just implicate him alone. She talked him down and he begged her not to go to police. She promised him she wouldn't. After he got out of Denise's vehicle and got into his own, he started following Denise. Brian pulled up next to her and begged her again not to go to police. She assured him she wouldn't and he drove off. Afterward, she went directly to the police station to report the kidnapping. She said nothing about Mike's disappearance. When word got to state investigators about the incident, an FDLE agent showed up at the station and interviewed Denise. She refused to talk to him about Mike. The agent even warned her that he planned to talk to Brian about the case. She cavalierly told the investigator, we'll see what he says. In December 2017, Brian Winchester was sentenced to 20 years in prison for the kidnapping. He changed his plea from not guilty to no contest. Prosecutors said Brian had actually planned on committing a murder-suicide the day he had abducted his ex-wife. Authorities said Denise's calmness and quick thinking saved her life. At Brian's sentencing, Michelle asked the judge to sentence her ex-husband to life in prison. Here is a news clip of her speaking to the judge. It comes down to my life or his, and I'm asking you, please, choose mine. He will finish what he has started, no matter what age he is when he's released. I'm asking you to sentence him to life in prison for the crimes he has committed. Soon after Brian Winchester's sentencing, Mark Perez, FDLE special agent in charge in Tallahassee, held a press conference announcing there was a break in the case of Mike Williams. It was an earth-shattering break. Standing here now, I can tell you that we know what happened to Mike Williams. He was murdered. After receiving new information, FDLE's crime scene unit and special agents spent days conducting an extensive search at an undisclosed location. That search led to the recovery of human remains and FDLE's crime laboratory analysts confirmed through DNA, through DNA analysis that the human remains are those of Mike Williams. What Perez didn't tell the media was that Brian had struck a deal with the state attorney's office. He got 20 years for the kidnapping and another 15 years probation after his release from prison. But he got full immunity in the Mike Williams case. He'd avoid spending the rest of his life in prison as long as he led authorities to the spot where he buried Mike's body and testified at Denise Williams' trial. And that's what happened. Mike Williams' remains were discovered in October 2017. 
So what happened was the lake that he buried him at, which is in Leon County, you know, the lake, it's one of these lakes that elevate, that it changes over the years. Um, at the time, the lake was drier, so there was more shore. And over the last, you know, 17 years, um, 18 years, the uh, the lake had risen some, so this was now in this marshy summit kind of area. A lot of tree growth had happened. So, you know, it, you know, Brian went out there and showed them where it was, but of course, you know, he can't be 100% sure he did it 18 years ago. So he gave them kind of, this is the area I did, so they had to do excavation around a certain area, and because the water was up higher now, they had to you know, basically put flotation devices and push that down. They had to clear the whole, um, this whole little point, this little landing. Um, it was just, it was a, a lot, a lot of excavation work. 98% of Mike's bones were found at the burial site. Some of the clothes he wore the day of his murder also were recovered. Agents took a DNA sample from Cheryl, which was matched to the DNA collected from the skeletal remains. Less than seven months later, on May 8, 2018, Denise Williams was arrested at her workplace at Florida State. She was charged with first-degree murder, conspiracy to commit first-degree murder, and accessory after the fact. So on her 19th birthday, Ansley's mother was arrested. Ansley Williams has never been interviewed by the media. You know, she was close with her mother. Her mother has several sisters. Um, but, yeah, that's just, it's, it's hard to know. You know, she was raised to believe that her dad died in the lake and it was an accident. Williams' trial commenced in September. I've played you clips from Brian Winchester's testimony. But there was another witness who provided crucial testimony at trial. Brian's ex-wife, Kathy Thomas. Not only did she assist prosecutors, she also assisted FDLE investigators. She participated in a controlled phone call with Denise. That recorded call was played to jurors during Kathy's testimony. Here is Jennifer Portman describing that. Very recently, just a couple months before Denise was arrested, after they had gotten the confession from Brian, Kathy actually wore a wire and had a, what I can only describe as a very bizarre conversation with Denise in which she basically confronts her about what happened. And Denise never says that she did it, but she doesn't really say that she didn't. And her reaction is not what one would expect to someone who had no involvement in her husband's killing. So she asked her point blank and her... yeah. And I guess she kept a monotone uh, voice. I mean, yeah, she didn't say, like, what are you talking about? I wouldn't, I didn't kill my, like, she was just more asking, like, she started changing the subject. She started asking about what other people might know. It was, it, 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 it was just, it was very strange. It was a very strange conversation. Just, it didn't comport with what people would consider to be basic, normal behavior um, of someone who had lost their husband in an accident. Kathy Thomas's testimony can be found on the Tallahassee Democrats website. Here is a portion of that recorded phone call she had with Denise. I mean, over the time that we've been married, I've always just pretended like I don't know anything. And
That was Denise asking her friend what she knew. The conversation continued. He just told me about Mike. What did he say? He was mad at you. And so he told me, he told me about what happened to Mike. Well, I would love to know what happened to Mike. He never told me. Brian Winchester divulged in his testimony that he and Denise discussed killing Kathy too. One idea they had was to drown Kathy and Mike at the same time. Here again is Jennifer Portman. She actually, early on, they they talked about getting rid of both her and Mike in a boating accident. And then Brian said he balked at that because, you know, she was a mother of his child and he couldn't do that so that they just focused on Mike. Um, I think that I think that Kathy's what you know what she said, and certainly on the stand, and what I know to be true is that she feels a lot of guilt about you know what if I had told should I if I had told Mike that I thought that they were having an affair, uh, would he be alive today? And I think that that's really hard for her because she never did tell Mike that you know about this relationship between Denise and Brian, and I think she feels a lot of you know, guilt about that. Jurors returned with a verdict of guilty. Denise Williams was convicted two days shy of the 18th anniversary of Mike's death. She showed no emotion when the verdict was read. On the contrary, Cheryl Williams was overcome with emotion. Cheryl, who was now confined to a wheelchair, leaned to her left and cried for several minutes after the word guilty was read aloud three times. On February 8th, Denise Williams was sentenced to life in prison. FDLE Special Agent Supervisor Will Meichler said wrapping up the case with not only an arrest and conviction, but also uncovering the whole truth about what happened to Mike Williams was long-awaited and gratifying. It was gratifying for him and his fellow investigators, but also to everyone who mourned the loss of Mike and those who never believed for a second that he was killed by alligators. And I think the satisfaction comes from finally finally being able to tell the truth as to what happened to, to Mike Williams, especially for his mother and his family and the people that loved him. Cheryl finally got her chance to speak to the judge and to reveal to Denise everything she felt in her heart since the day she told her that she would never see her granddaughter again. Nine months after Mike disappeared, his wife Denise told me if I continued to seek a criminal investigation, I would lose Ansley, my granddaughter, Mike's only child. Denise might as well have waved a red flag in front of a bull. I knew that she knew where Mike was or what happened to him. I love Ansley, but Mike was my son. I became even more determined to find the truth. If I had not done what I did for 17 years, Mike's disappearance would have never been solved. 
Cheryl Williams had a lot to get off her chest that day. I am asking you to lock Denise Merrill Williams Winchester up for the rest of her life with no chance of parole. She has already lived 18 years longer than my son. She got to watch Mike's daughter grow up. Nick, Mike, and I didn't. Please don't allow Denise to ever be around any of her future grandchildren because one generation of William's children growing up around murderers is enough. She ended her statement taking aim at Brian Winchester and describing to the judge the horrifying images she lives with every day. Judge Hankinson, for the rest of my life, when I try to sleep at night, I will see my son clinging to a tree stump and like Seminole in the dark, knowing that his best friend is trying to kill him. I hear his voice screaming for help. I wasn't there to help him. It will haunt me forever. Denise Williams said nothing at her sentencing. After she was told by the judge she would spend the rest of her life in prison, she was swiftly escorted out of the courtroom. The saga was finally over. Jennifer Portman spent 12 years following this story. She reflected on the moment she learned that Mike's remains were found and his death was officially ruled a homicide. I think that... One moment that really sticks out was when I was in my office and I got the tip that Mike's body had been found and that there was going to be a news conference at FDLE that morning announcing that. And I think the the gravity of that and what that all, it, it kind of, you know, made me sit on the edge of my desk and it changed everything. It changed everything. He went from missing to murdered, and that we had proof of it, and it just really changed everything. And it, it you know, it's, it's like you've been looking at, you've been writing these words for 10 years, and you've been looking at things from a certain lens, and now it's just completely shifted. Um, so I think that that moment was a tectonic shift in, you know, how, what, what my life is like and what the world looks like. Mike was missing. You know, but now Mike Williams was murdered. It's proven. We can see it. Now someone's been sent to jail for to prison for life for it. And it's all pretty amazing. Brian Winchester is being housed at Wakulla Correctional Institution in Crawfordville. He is scheduled to be released in July 2036, at which time he will be 65 years old. Denise Williams is serving her life sentence at the Florida Women's Reception Center in Ocala. Thank you for listening. Join me next time when I will discuss the mysterious case of Linda Cooney, who in 2014 was convicted of shooting and paralyzing her son in Las Vegas. Jurors concluded that Cooney shot her son with the very same gun that was used in the shooting death of her ex-husband, 20 years earlier in Palm Beach County. Cooney was acquitted in that shooting. But in another stroke of fortune for Cooney, her 2014 conviction was overturned. She is awaiting a new trial for that shooting. My special guest for that episode 
will be Palm Beach Post investigative reporter Christine Stapleton. Join us then. You can find Tony on Twitter at Tony Crime Writer or email him at Tony.Holt at news-jrnl.com. Be sure to rate us on iTunes. Sun Crime State is recorded by Tony Holt and produced by Chris Bridges for the Daytona Beach News Journal. Just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts.